Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Josh Collinsworth the Portfolio Manager at Nomadic Value Partners. Josh started Nomadic in 2019 after spending a number of years as an allocator. Josh is one of the most eclectic investors I know, and his understanding of the Byzantine U.S. healthcare system makes him my go-to investor when trying to navigate investments in that industry. In this enlightening conversation, we discussed Josh's path from being an allocator to starting his own investment firm, how he developed an expertise within healthcare, Nomadic's time horizon and how it compares to that of other investors, and portfolio concentration and position sizing. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Josh Collinsworth of Nomadic Value Partners. Josh, you left a role at West Virginia University to start Nomadic Partners in 2019. I'd love to hear about the founding story and what made you decide to do something very entrepreneurial. Yeah, it, it's been an evolution. Um, so, uh, I, I guess I should like start with the long story of like my childhood, which was, I was it's pretty important with choosing to do my own venture, but uh, my family, uh, I grew up farming. Uh, so like my father actually uh, left a job to start his own farm, which is kind of impossible today <laughs> uh, given uh, the economics of it, but he started with one. And, you know, as I was growing up, uh, I was, very active in the growth of that venture into multiple farms. Uh, and when I turned 18, I went to college and I did not want to just study. I wanted to do my own business. <laughs> Actually, uh, at 18, I took all my savings and bought a vending business um, that I ran for a couple of years. And actually, um, so like I had some space on the machines. I had the idea to sell advertising on them, like all this kind of stuff I was trying. Um, and that didn't pay my way through school, but it was certainly some spending money and, and, and some lessons and just, you know, getting out there and hustling and talking to 
other business owners and trying to get my, you know, a machine's place and whatnot. Um, also across that time, I was active in picking my own stocks. Uh, I've always been interested in the public markets and I just, you know, from middle America growing up in an agricultural community, it's hard to have any kind of, uh, like belief that you'd ever be in New York doing something like that. <laughs> uh, so like, but, but I enjoyed it and I, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes at a young age with stocks, but, uh, um, but Anyways, uh, uh, there was that. And then when I, um, I actually dropped out of school uh, two years in and and joined a renewable energy uh, a development startup, basically. Uh, uh, and that didn't go as planned and ended up uh, learning a lot. But, you know, that was a, a venture that didn't work out. And I re-enrolled in school and at the same time ended up getting a job uh, in the city that I was going to school in. Uh, uh, with a development firm in renewable energy. And I worked as a project manager for about five years uh, um, during and after school. Uh, we built a lot of solar throughout the Southeast. Uh, and uh, this is a long story, but I'm getting to the point. Uh, it uh, um, uh, Towards the end of that, of that renewable energy experience, uh, there was a, a what I call a concentrated family office. It was a multifamily office that uh, most of the clients were siblings, uh, but they all had their separate pools of capital uh, and is, you know, a multi-generational wealth and and business builders uh, from the Southeast. But um, I joined that as an analyst and it, it, it just so happened that that firm was based in the small town at which I went to high school in. Uh, and, you know, I knew that they were doing real investing uh, they were traveling to New York, Boston, London all the time, uh, and specifically focused on um, emerging managers and had a bias towards fundamental long only. Uh, and so I spent about five years, just a little bit shy of five years uh, with that group, uh, really, you know, like cutting my teeth and learning what good allocation is, right? And, and finding a good firm that's usually in an upstart setting uh but that's really getting started correctly on good footing uh and it really does show up in outperformance if you do it right uh and um so like that was a really good experience and then that experience was furthered by you know i had this view that i wanted to maybe be a cio of some endowment or foundation or some kind of large pool of capital uh and i i um was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to work for for a university endowment um, focused on emerging managers, but in private equity in a space that I hadn't spent as much time in. Um, and it, it was across that time, and this is all in my twenties, right? Uh, so like it, it, in, in your late twenties, everyone goes through some kind of quarter life career, I'm not going to say mm -hmm. crisis, but like some kind of reflection of like, is this what I want to do? <laughs> you know? And, and, um, uh, and I had such a wide, uh, breadth of of knowledge around like different ways to make money, right? And then different uh, networks and circles of investors in those different uh, uh, strategies and approaches uh, that, you know, across that time in my own personal account, I had proven to myself that I both enjoyed and was good at picking stocks. Um, and uh, so it, it was just kind of like learning about, you know, I, I enjoy kind of being on the front lines. So like, you know, like right now as an allocator, I'm like 
uh, you know, on the staff or, or like, uh, in the office of the five-star general, you know, and, uh, and I really want to be the guy on the front lines. Uh, and, uh, and that, that was a, a big realization moment. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, I've learned to describe it better over time. It's just like, I like to have, like, I'm more motivated by having a greater pulse on the risk being taken. And, and, um, and, you know, I don't know if there, there's a book, uh, it's on my bookshelf over there. I can't remember the name. It was like strengths and weaknesses or something. I can't remember the author of it, but, uh, um, I, I read that a few years ago and, and, uh, it's really interesting how in some, uh, settings, someone's strengths can actually be weaknesses or headwinds. Um, and then if you completely change the setting, that same person, same personality, same working style, same approach to life, all these things can be like outstanding strengths, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and I think it's in your twenties, you should figure that out as a person, you know, uh, what that setting should be. And when, and, uh, uh, and I, it, um, it was becoming clear to me that picking stocks and running some kind of strategy was, was something that I needed to do. Uh, but the big question was, there was, there was two big questions. Uh, one was, could I raise any money? <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, I'm from middle America, not particularly wealthy, uh, you know, a, a network and, and it's just like, I've built some connections, but it's like, am I going to be able to convince someone who, sees that I don't have the pedigree from this, from working in sell side, the target school, you know, and then, and then switching to buy side and working at the choice firm and all that. So I don't have that. Right. So like, it's, it's, could I raise money? And then the, the second thing, uh, which is actually uh, something that I've, I've, I would say that I've, cro I've crossed that bridge at this point, but getting started. And I think every emerging manager, whether they admit it or not, uh, they, they have this issue and that's, when you get started on your own and you either get a reduction in resources that you're used to or or an expansion of universe mm -hmm. <laughs> uh and so like uh you know across my personal account experience uh there'd be times more often than not i'd have only three or four stocks uh and there would be a period of weeks that i didn't look at the account um you just you can't do that for other people like you, you might could over time three or four stocks in a portfolio, if, if that's, you know, if you build your client base that way and that's your approach and, but, but you got to look at your stocks every day, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you, you got to like find a way to get into that flow. And, and so that, that was a question mark for me getting started was uh, uh, there was two question marks of the raising money. And then the, the, like, am I going to be able to take this idea and really execute it? Um, and so like in, in, you know, I chose the absolute best time to get started, which was Mar March 2nd, 2020. <laughs> uh, uh, so like the very first month is like down, you know, it's like, uh, uh, but like, uh, okay, is this experiment going to work, you know? And, uh, but it, it's definitely, uh, it has evolved so far past that now, you know, I'm, I'm working on four years and, um, what, what hasn't changed is the approach and the strategy hasn't changed and it's been bettered over time, but, but what has changed is um, that universe is built out. Uh, I've got a fully invested portfolio. Um, you know, early in my track record, there's a lot of cash in those in those weightings, uh, uh, which is suppressed returns in some way. That you know is when I is like re regretful in some ways, right? When you look back, it's like, well, man, I should have been fully, you know. But like it's stuff like that, right? Uh, but you got to figure that stuff out over time, and. Uh, um, 
I would say that uh, those two questions had to get answered and they've been answered at this point as I've, you know, survived over the last few years. But, um, you know, to drive the the wanting to do my own thing. And, and I think some of this is uh, to get back to your first question. I'm rambling on a little bit, but um, is I have a lot of my father in me <laughs> and, and he is a farmer to the core. And uh, uh, and there's a there's a, a bit of this like self-determination uh and, and drive that i, I kind of want to do my own thing um and and uh, that's definitely influencing it uh so like that i think a mix of all those things of 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 wanting to do my own thing wanting to pick stocks not having the pedigree and kind of having to go a different path uh and um and then really just it's just like deep in me to like tinker and want to be commercial uh and you know throughout that process so like that i'd say that was really what culminates what nomadic value partners has you know been launched around if that makes sense that's incredible background and we're going to go dive deeper into a bunch of different topics there but you did say something about your allocation experience and how you learned what good allocation looked like what yeah. what have you learned or what did you learn from those experiences that's um can be applied when you're building your own investment firm mm-hmm um, definitely pattern matching around the managers that tend to outperform. What do they do day to day? What do they not do? I guess is more important. Um, and, uh, uh, definitely seeing a wide or a large amount of managers like that. So you have a pretty good perspective on, on what you should not be doing. Uh, um, also, uh, I think, and, and, we'll get into this in a second with my approach and, and, and industries I follow and things like that. But like in the asset management business, you know, uh, learning how decisions get made uh, and how like, like, and how that differs from like uh, an investment committee where it's like by consensus or there's a single decision maker, things like that. Uh, you learn how all types of firms do that and how they manage that and what works and what doesn't. And there is no, only one rule, by the way, but it's 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 all situational. But but uh, you know you, you kind of narrow in on a preference as an investor what what you tend to want to underwrite uh, or like uh, you know assess the risk of. Um, and then um, let's see. Uh, oh, and just like you know, just the just general understanding that there are a million ways to make money, <laughs> uh, and and there is no right way. Uh, it but. But one thing that is consistent across all the different ways of making money is you have to be consistent with it. Mm. Uh, and you and and that means consistent through periods of underperformance, um, which happens to every strategy. Uh, and then um, just you know being like humble towards that. I think that there's a lot of investors uh, that uh, you know they, it's like this is the only way you make money or like that or that you don't you don't do it this way or like that that's like uh uh it, that's just not the way to think about it <laughs> you know and and but i i think too also uh understanding all the different ways folks make money in public in public and private markets is when you're looking at a shareholder roster um and kind of you can get a sense of like um uh, you can you can more quickly back into a narrative as to why this investor owns a stock uh at this time uh and when you kind of see how the monies get made across the various strategies i think that's helpful 
So before we dive into the strategy and philosophy uh, a little deeper, I'm interested in the name you chose, Nomadic Partners. How does that name reflect the way you've chosen to invest? Yeah. So it's Nomadic Value Partners is is, is actually what I've got filed in the courthouse as a as a DBA. <laughs> but uh, uh, it um uh, it's very personal to me. I actually, I've, I've struggled to answer this in the past, actually. Uh, um, and, and, um, but it, it, it's very personal to me as in, I, I like to through hike, uh, and, and, you know, a through hike, we can get into it if you want to, but like, it, it's a point to point it's, it's, it's dozens of miles, preferably over a hundred, uh, you know, at, at one time, uh, you're carrying everything on your back, you know, you're, you're wild camping as they say in Europe, but you're, you know, backpacking essentially over very long distances. Um, and that is, you know, a, it's core to humans, uh, you know, as a species. Uh, but, but then it's also my experience as getting better as a through hiker, um, has been a constant state of evolution. Um, so like not change. And I can understand like the, the word nomadic can imply a, that I ripped it off from nomad investment partnership, which is not true. B, uh, um, that I trade a lot in the strategy, not true. <laughs> uh, or change my mind a lot or whatever, but like, uh, uh, but no, it's more, it's more to reflect evolution. And, and, and so this constant state of like learning, but learning in a sense of like getting better and the efficiency of, around a certain um, uh, skill or, or thing that you're doing, which in my case is either through hiking or investing. <laughs> uh, but like uh, um, it, it, I think it's pretty symbolic of that. Uh you know, into one for, for the strategy. Also just me personally outside of through hiking, I've also moved around a lot. Uh, I've lived in a lot of different States. Uh, and so like, that's another one, but more personal than investing. <laughs> this season of compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. So my interactions with you, it became pretty clear quickly that you have an eclectic taste in stocks. How would you describe your approach and philosophy as it comes to security selection? Um. So I'd really say it stems from, um, you know, my time as an allocator, uh, and I've always been rooted in fundamentals in a business, like, like business minded, um, and like what makes a good business and what is not a good business. And, and one way to learn what's a good business is to work in a not good business. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and I grew up in one of those, uh, you know, agriculture is extremely tough and it's about as, um, in certain pockets of it, it's near perfectly competitive that we learn in economics class uh, and what that means um, for the economics of the owner. But so there's all of that, like in, in just the way I think. But then also, um, as my time as an allocator, really honing in on, I would say, a style. And it, it's not a style that uh, you could put into a bucket of like, oh, your growth or value or something like that. But like a a style of, of a type of situation I like to look for. And, and it, it really stems from what I call minority growth investing. Uh, 
And so, you know, you can say, well, so in private equity, you have late stage VC, right? And and I really, I bucket that into two things. One would be like uh, late stage VC that is the groups like the T. Rowe prices and the fidelities coming in 18 months to two years before the company goes public. Uh, and that game is a political one to get access. It's a if you want to boil it down to factors, it's a momentum strategy. Um, a lot of a lot of allocators uh, that I've met like really poo-poo on that strategy. I would say that uh, that I tend to not invest that way myself, but it can be eye-popping returns if you get the cycle right. Um, so it's it's not without trying, you know, if it's if it suits your fancy. Um, but but really, there's a second part to late stage VC. There's a there's a and I, I more associate with the this latter one. And that's really, um, and this ebbs and flows with market environments. Uh, we're coming out of a market environment where just about every venture capitalist or every private equity firm got over their skis with TAM, you know, and, and are like, uh, the momentum, it, well, closet momentum in investing in private markets. Uh, but you have these, you know, it ebbs and flows and, and, and a good growth equity, a minority stake. So you're coming into a private company, and you're not buying a majority control and controlling the board and and wiping clean management. That's not the approach. It's a company that's in place that you already like, <laughs> that you take a minority stake in at an earlier stage. So that over the years, it's being increasingly Series B. You know, so you have like seed stage, you got Series A's, you know, Series B through Series whatever letter you want to put before they go public. Um, but increasingly, it's Series B, and what really what that means to me and I, i'm going to wrap into the approach here in a second this is more of the definition of things that kind of like helps codify my approach a little bit but um is you're really underwriting uh two or two or three things as a minority growth investor the first is it is the total addressable market and I'm here to tell you your total addressable market is not a trillion dollars. Uh, it, you know, it, it and th and that's part of the ebb and flow of the Silicon Valley drum uh, mm -hmm. of, of, of you know of the of the flow of that river, if you say uh, or if you say it that way. But like, uh, um, is is like what actually are we addressing here? What are we attacking? What's the size of the market? That we're in a period now where that's becoming a lot. That calculation is becoming a lot more rational, and it should be. Um, but you know, a good investor is going to try to maintain rationality through those different market environments on, on that calculation. So A is like understanding an industry enough that you can have some idea of what kind of market and pain point you can attack and what that means in dollars, you know? So there's that, that's part of the job. The other part is, um, you know, America has been around now for greater than 200 years and there's been a lot of consolidation of industries and there are incumbents in these industries that are big and have a lot of market power. They're not going anywhere. You know, this whole disruption thing, this whole like, in, like innovators, to, uh, a dilemma or whatever. Right. I mean, it's like, it's there, but it's not like the myopic view that a lot of folks have. Right. I mean, it's, it's like over time market share gets chipped away by a better mousetrap. Right. And so part of your job as a growth equity investor is to understand and then invest behind what I call business model innovation. Mm -hmm. And that is 
specific to the situation you're in, the industry you're in, the company you're attacking. Uh, it, it, that innovation can mean the various things, but basically you want to be in a preferred competitive position relative to the incumbency, right? And your due diligence should, should reveal that. Uh, and then the third thing is what I call having actual sponsorship in the company. And so mm -hmm. in minority growth investing on the private side, you have that generally uh, if you have a relatively focused capital stack and who's on it, right? Um, and and you have a lead investor, right? You have a you have a, an investor in the round that is underwriting the deal. It's bringing in the, a small syndicate if needed, or if not. When I was an allocator, I preferred they didn't bring anyone else in. It was just one, you know. But but uh, you know, that's that's sponsorship, and that comes out of like decades ago in merchant banking, right? Where like the risk of loss is on the balance sheet of the bank. Right. Uh, uh, like that, that helps a lot with uh, making sure everyone's incentivized the right way. Right. Uh, it, so you take those three big pillars. Right. And I apply that those to my strat. Like it has like shaped the way I think about like investing. And, and, and so like uh, but it's in public markets. Right. So like uh, so I'm trying to understand the nomadic value partners approach is trying to understand a small set of industries better than almost anyone else, right? I mean, it's like understand from the histories from the start to today, which people, because all industries have some kind of culture to them that were started by the founders that made waves in that industry and started the what is now the incumbency and how that's evolved over time. Um, that Learning about like, like, uh, the assets at play in that industry, like, like what's the actual function of the of the industry? Like, what's what kind of resources are being used for this industry to do a thing to solve a problem to meet a need? Like, those are like basic things that that I think as generalists sometimes you can just miss because you're too focused on valuation of a company mm -hmm. or what this person thinks about it or whatever. And and like so like I try to keep uh, focused on a handful of industries that I know really really well. And, and what I mean more specifically by that is like having a network of operators that you can talk to on the phone, right? Uh, and that's not just through expert networks. I use those, but like it's it's like actually building relationships with operators, right? Uh, it's actually building relationships with private equity firms that invest in that space as a specialist. It's it's talking with other public equity managers that invest in that space over. I'm not that old, longer than me, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and then also allocators who may, who invest in managers across that or or are more direct, they're investing. Uh, so like I I try to I approach like idea sourcing I guess through that lens, um, and then and then uh, um, really the I call it the preferred asset to own. So an asset which in the public equity strategy is a stock, but uh, it's it really bubbles up. It really shows itself uh, over if you've done enough work, it's pretty obvious the company you need to own. It's just does the valuation make sense? Oftentimes it doesn't. <laughs> and uh, and so like you 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 do all this work and you track and you you can't own it yet. But uh, but it's that ongoing ma maintenance work that allows you to move quickly and aggressively when the valuation makes sense. And, and I guess in in my approach too, and and um, I guess you can cut me off if I'm meandering around but like uh it all has to get distilled down into a set of metrics that i track as kpis basically uh and 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 
I look for opportunities ideally where the revenue growth, you know, the drivers of the equity return, which would be, you know, revenue growth, margin enhancements, capital structure changes, and like the returns, like, like dividends or buybacks or something and um, change in valuation. Uh, I try to preferably keep that like ideally balanced, like equally balanced in a single stock idea. Right. But that's not, you can't get that every time. You really can't get that most of the time. You're taking a bet somewhere in those drivers, right? And what I try to to make up for that, and not, and this is kind of this is portfolio management, but I, but I try to to keep that balanced across the entire portfolio as a consolidated uh, conglomerate, it, conglomerate, it, if you will, right? Uh, it's like uh, uh, to, to it it kind of addresses. I say kind of because it it's like loosely associated. It, it's proven to me it's not perfect, but it kind of addresses the factor risk uh, because it, 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 because really what you're getting at is like duration and, uh, um, and like keeping it kind of balanced in a way where a year like 2022 doesn't completely blow you up or, mm. you know, and, 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 and it worked for me in that year, which I'm very thankful for. <laughs> uh, mm. But like uh, uh, that, that's um, uh, it, all those views and all that research and everything gets distilled down into a portfolio expressed like that. Um, and then I'm concentrated because I want, I want, I want to move the needle, you know, it, uh, and, and this is my, I got all my own money in this, um, the same with clients and I want to compound capital. And, uh, so like it, I don't want 30 stocks, you know, uh, and, and I've done a ton of work on these things and generally know them pretty well, <laughs> you know, isn't, you know, a relative to wall street. Uh, and so I want to, I want to capitalize on the, on the information I have the perspective, which I would separate from information, but just the general perspective uh, and trust my numbers uh, and and really go for a forward IRR that is attractive. And what does that look like in terms of concentration? I own 10 stocks today. And is that like equally weighted? How do, how do you weight those different 10 different positions? Uh, it's not equally weighted, uh, but there's three different sizing buckets that I kind of use as a uh, uh, like a, a rule of thumb and, and that's, uh, 3% slugs are very small. That'd be, that, that would be considered a farm team for me. I understand that's big for some folks, but that's, <laughs> that's considered a farm team for me. Uh, and, um, and those might be in industries that I don't know as well, but that I'm working really hard to understand on the same, or I like, I see a trajectory that I can get to the same, uh, knowledge, you know, level, uh, um, the opportunity for the multiple on invested capital is high, uh, or there might be, uh, you know, uh, the industry is evolving maybe faster than I can wrap my head around, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still attractive. Uh, but that, in, that induces or that that uh, in, like increases risk in my in my mind. Uh, uh, and then um, uh, also if just if it's in an industry where like so many factors out of management control, like any kind of macro thing can just like completely just blow up your thesis or something. And I, I try not to size over 3% that way. Uh, uh, but then also, you know, I've got like a 6% uh, kind of sizing heuristic, which is the next level up. And then a 12% at, at cost, you know, these are all at cost and I let things drift. Um, and I let stuff drift a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like there's been um, multiple times now since I've started where a single stock has been 20% or more of the portfolio through drift. Uh, and, uh, uh, and that's okay. Uh, and, um, uh, but 
it obviously increases risk if the valuation's gone up. You know, if the big driver of it going up is because of valuation and and um and that you have to be mindful of that stuff, you know, it's portfolio management. But uh and then I would say too that I've this is an evolution over time, as I used to when I felt convicted in something, uh, an industry that I knew and the tailwinds were there and the management team was good and the IRR penciled out really great. Uh, I would just buy a 12% position. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I come in, I really view a 12% position as well as a 6% position uh, as a series of 3% uh, uh, trigger pulls. Uh, so I come in at three, I'll build it to six, I'll build it to nine, I'll build it to 12. Uh, and then, and, and that's over a period of months. Um, and really, I've, I've got this little catchphrase that I use for myself, that it's thesis confirmed over that as soon as like over a couple of quarters of owning it, that it's really tracking the way that I think it's going to fundamentally. Uh, and then the, the second part of that is uh, trading experience earned. So thesis confirmed, trading experience earned. And that's just time. And uh, so I've learned to to really, that like reduces risk of my own execution uh, by by sizing the slugs like that. And I would assume that if you're taking that, big positions your ideal is to hold these things for a while so um as i was looking through your materials i saw an interesting chart that describes the nomadic sweet spot in terms of time horizon can you describe where that sits relative to that of other firms such as private equity firms or family office yeah so so that slide it like i think it highlights um uh like hedge funds you know, being one, and this is like a slide of a expanding time horizon. So like from between one and 10 years. Uh, and so like, you could think of that as duration of holding or something, but like, uh, so like long, short hedge funds and I think private equity funds is next. Uh, and then, um, uh, uh, like family capital or something like, you know, like, uh, uh, like dynastic family capital, like, like truly multi-generational. Uh, and then like, it has those those like investor subcategories, but then also like uh, uh, what drives the returns over that sh over the different time frames, right? So like long short funds being you know uh, three months to a year of holding, they're all going to say eighteen months to three years. Most long short hedge funds don't hold that long, uh, but um, you know what drives that? And sentiment change, right? I mean, it's like valuation changes. Uh, they're catching whether and depending on the on the, the actual approach they're using, it could be relative value in this in a single industry. You know, it could be uh, relative value to the S and P, whatever. But like uh, it's or like uh, informational advantages or special situations or something where it's like the market's got this wrong and it needs to re-rate. And you know, sometimes I go down there. You know, uh, sometimes if I like really know something and I'm confident in it and I think there's a re-rate opportunity, I'll go down there. But it's not, I'm not building a whole portfolio out of that. Uh, and the next one, private equity, you know, everyone says private equity is like, it's like locked up capital, 10 plus years. It, and, you know, it is like the actual, for the LPs experience, it's like try 12 plus years. <laughs> hmm. uh, and, uh, but but the actual duration of the of the individual investments being made and what the GP, the general partner is actually investing for in private equity is really, you know, like one and a half, so 18 months to five years max, right? Uh, because if there, if you think about the fund, like this, this the like lifetime, um, the way the cash flow flow of a fund is like, you know, you're, st you're staging investments as you find them and 
you want to wrap this whole thing up in 10 years, you can't buy a bunch of a bunch of uh, companies that you plan to hold for 10 years. Right. Uh, so so it, it it's really uh, there's some of that multiple re-rate that private equity. And this is I mean, I'm sort of overgeneralizing on that slide because it, it's not just private equity. There's a lot that goes in private equity, right? All the different strategies. But uh, uh, but generally a multiple re-rate from some kind of like buy and build and like stacking companies together and getting scale or some kind of multiple re-rate from just like long sustained organic growth rates from whatever advantage the company has or whatever. Um, so like there, that multiple re-rate is like deeply embedded in the return expectation of private equity, uh, you know, over that short duration. Um, and then, you know, the family dynastic capital uh, is it, I, I put that there isn't just really the word dynastic and the word family, meaning that like you don't really have constraints and you think multi-generationally. Um, and, and that's the, um, uh, you know, finding companies like what matters when you hold a company for 10 years and you want to outperform, like, like what is actually driving that? Well, it's returns on invested capital, but more specifically, it's the returns on the incremental invested capital, right? It's the direction of that. Uh, and which drives a re-rating in a lot of cases, but like also, uh, just the math of a balance sheet, <laughs> uh, if you're investing, uh, at high incremental rates, higher than the past, uh, that balance sheet's going to recreate itself in really exciting ways over time. Right. So like, uh, you're really investing for that and that's the, the effects of compounding. Um, so like there, that's driving it. And then if you look out farther than that, uh, which I think is almost impossible to be honest, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but some firms have done it, uh, is company culture, right? And you could, you could argue co company culture is spread around all that it is. It's like every day, so everyone shows up to work is, is the short term, a series of short terms that build up to that long term. But then culture is important to that. But, um, but like those really long sustained outperformance periods, um, if you don't have that, then you're not going to have the long sustained outperformance periods unless you just got everybody held at like the entire globe held hostage uh, via your business model, like Visa or MasterCard or something. I don't know. <laughs> but like, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it's that's uh, really what's driving those slides. And we're, and where Nomadic fits, I guess, uh, uh, to finish that, because I think it's part of your question, where, where Nomadic fits in that is uh, sometimes I go down to the sentiment change, like I already mentioned, but most of the time it's it's that kind of, it straddles that private equity uh, uh, period where you try to time the cycle right, it, uh, which will generally drive some kind of re-rate over time if you're good uh, and focused on the right things. Uh, and then if I'm doing, if I'm fo if, like me as an analyst is focused on the right things, I'm, sh I'm always shooting for a company that I can be held for you know, over those return on incremental invested capitals and company culture periods, uh, that's just not always the case. It's just the reality is it's really hard to predict five plus years out, uh, and 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 get all those things right uh, on on the front end. So you know that's part of the beauty of public markets is you can buy and sell and you can you can move on. And but I'm shooting for that, right? So like I put Nomadic Value Partners on that slide, I, I straddle the private equity. And the return on incremental invested capital. Uh, to be honest, I can't remember if I cross over into the culture one or not, but <laughs> uh, uh, it's somewhere in there. Yeah. And given that desired uh, holding period and the difficulty of predicting growth, as you said, five years out, 
How have you typically approached valuing these companies? Is it a DCF? Are you looking at multiples analysis? How how do you gain that conviction that there's a margin of safety, um, you know, especially given that time horizon? Um, I almost never do a DCF. I think I've done a DCF one time on a forest product company uh, um, for a sanity check. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, um, but like, uh, uh, it, it's almost always a buildup, uh, like some kind of analysis of what's building up my forward IRR assumption. And at the end of some analysis period, which is generally five years out, uh, and it depends on the situation, but it's, it's generally five years out. Uh, I want to make sure that my, when I take into account my, what I believe to be accurate assumptions, um, that, uh, if this equity trades at a market multiple, uh, what's my exposure there? Uh, and 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 that's that's really how I think about it. It's not much. It's not much more complex than that. It, but I, I mean, I'm calculating. I'm building models to to calculate what true free, free cash flow is, right? I mean, it's like I'm I'm that's what I'm using to to figure value. You know, it, it, it's it's based. It's rooted in free cash flow. Uh, but it's it's uh um some kind of market multiple is like on that out year is uh, trying to see where, how I'm exposed on either over or under that uh, understanding that that moves around. But, you know, uh, uh, part of that is just um, this might be a, ch- a slight change of subject, but I think it's sort of related is just like when you're concentrated and long only uh, like you should embrace the beta <laughs> uh, like it. it And that's the uh, your your beta exposed. Right. If you're t- if you're looking five years out and and, and trying to like uh, see what you are over, like over or under S&P multiple, but like uh, uh, knowing that that S&P multiple could move around. And so will your multiple in your stock. Right. Uh, but if you're if you're looking at the right companies with real advantages, uh, generating real cash flows, uh Five plus years out, and you're and you're focused on the right levers and the right magnitude of those levers. That multiple change, uh, unless you're getting way over your skis and buying something fifty times earnings or something silly like that, uh, uh, you know it. It you can that risk is is relatively minimal. I think it'd be helpful to speak uh, or chat through an example to kind of highlight what you, all of these other uh, all of these frameworks and uh, philosophies that we've talked about. When we first met, we talked about this company called Oak Street Health. I may have the timing wrong, but it felt like right after we talked, CVS bought Oak Street for what I recall was a pretty healthy premium. As an example, I'm interested in what you saw in Oak Street that others might have missed. Yeah, that one is fun to talk about because, A, it's not in the portfolio anymore because CVS took it out. I can I can happily talk about it. <laughs> uh, and something... Um, Actually, we didn't talk about this, but I, I really don't want to talk about holdings that I currently own at all. Uh, uh, but I'm happy to talk about anything in the past. Uh, and so, so this is one of those I owned it in the past, don't own it anymore. Uh, but um, basically, I so healthcare services is is a is a is an industry that I would say that I know really well, and I have a deep network of GPs and a deep network of operators at this point. Uh, and I'm constantly building that out and, and, um, uh, keeping a pulse on what's going on, uh, in the end, like in the, it's like a subsectors to say it's a single industry is a bit too broad, but it's like a subsector of general healthcare. Right. Um, and the thing is what, what I like, actually I should step, uh, I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but it's important. 
uh, it's something when I was in renewable energy, uh, some at a young age was something that, um, really shaped how, uh, my willingness to interact with industries that have high government intervention. Hmm. Um, so, uh, one thing that, uh, was burned into me as an experience, uh, and a very positive view of the government, which most people don't have is when I was in solar, uh, at the time, there was this thing called the Sunshot Program that was being, uh, it was drafted, it was implemented and administered by the Department of Energy uh, and with crossover with the National Renewable Energy Lab. Uh, and what it was, was the U.S. government knew that we needed to decarbonize, and they didn't say that term back then. This was uh, middle 2000s, 2005, seven, uh, 2005 six, seven, uh actually George W. Bush. Uh, but, um, the goal was, Hey, we need to build more renewable energy. We need to upgrade this grid. Uh, and we don't have the supply chain to do it. Uh, and it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. So the government stepped in and came up with a program that had many moving parts. Uh, but basically the goal was like the ultimate goal. It had many moving parts, but they had one goal. And that was to get the cost to install utility grade solar to below $1 a watt. And that was that, that reasoning was there because, or that, that goal was there because that is what got the levelized cost of energy over a lifetime of a solar project uh, to being um, below the cost of everything else. Right. Uh, and it was self-sustaining. So to do that, you had to build out a supply chain and the supply chain wasn't there. And so they created all kinds of programs uh, to enhance that. And uh, and it worked and it crossed multiple political parties. Right. It was it was Republican to, to Democrat, uh, back to Republican and back to Democrat, uh, you know, s- since it was enacted. And uh, and it worked. Solar's below, uh, a utility scale solar can be installed for sub for, for sub one dollar. Uh, and and it, it is the cheapest uh, depending on what market you're in. Uh, most markets is the cheapest. Uh, some markets like Texas, sometimes wind produces at a negative rate. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and it's way cheaper than nuclear. Sorry, nuclear bulls. Your levelized cost of energy is expensive. Like it's, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing on your technology and the fact that we might need it, but it's just more expensive. Uh, and so like it, it, so it worked. So let's shift it back to healthcare. Uh, healthcare, I, I think I'm going to make a call here and I could be wrong, but I, I'm tracking right currently is I really think healthcare's uh, like public sentiment, like peak negativity uh, was uh, at the passing of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and it might it might be a window of two years at the, at the election of Trump. So like the 20, uh, so like the Affordable Care Act was passed in like 2010, enacted like 2012 or something. And then like uh 2014 to 16 you know the, that period like when the all the all the drama around the, the 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 health exchanges and the costs and everyone kind of like exiting it and all this stuff um uh, that's probably the peak neg- like negative sentiment from the public with a, with the US healthcare system and the reason is um the affordable care act was actually a really great piece of legislation uh <laughs> it, it definitely had its problems uh but the kind of the point of American democracy or or representative Republic, whatever we are, uh, uh, is we pass legislation and, uh, then we go back and we tweak it. 
right? Uh, and because like something doesn't work or like something that was unforeseen came out and it was bad and we need to go change it. And that, that process has been working in healthcare really well, actually, uh, uh, more recently. Uh, and so like the, the ACA really set that in place because uh, part of the ACA was uh, they enact, they, they uh, started a new innovation center called the, so the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the CMS, started this new innovation center called the, the CMMI, uh, which is their innovation center. Uh, and in that, they had lots of industry collaboration uh, between the government, payers, providers, pharmaceuticals, even uh, uh, of, you know, we have an incentives problem in the healthcare system, right? It's like the fee for service throughput. Um, you got all these power struggles between payers and provide, you know, and, and health like hospital systems and, and, and uh, like, and a lot of companies are borderline fraudulent uh, and like all, you know, just like uh, uh, big, big incentive problems. Um, this innovation center really was set, was set up to figure out how to fix those, those incentive problems. And, it's working. They uh, basically have been releasing program after program, usually within Medicare, but also in some state-run kind of managed Medicaid programs in collaboration with the feds. Um, and where they have been basically coming into, well, the the goal is to push the financial risk, which historically has been either paid by the government or by uh, payers, uh, closer to the provider which incentivizes the provider to actually follow through with care and actually generate better outcomes. Uh, and over time that actually shows up as like lower cost. Uh, and so that's actually working and we're, you're starting to see it pro proliferate across the country in various models and various subsectors of the delivery of care. Um, and now increasingly so on the employer sponsored market and, and different uh, age cohorts and how that healthcare is delivered. Uh, so there was a group of companies. Um, it's more than a group, but there's been a ton of companies at this point, but really in the beginning of, of those models uh, that got started in what I call that Petri dish of understanding how to like push risk closer to the actual patient. Um, and they built, they like figured out all the kinks, right? They worked out mm. all the kinks uh, and they built, business models that generate outcomes, have better patient satisfaction, save money to the healthcare system. And they're actually uh, solving problems for not all these companies, but the one Oak Street in particular is one of them. And there's a handful of others, but where they actually solve problems for every single stakeholder in the healthcare system, right? They, they, they solve problems for uh, at the macro level, you know, CMS, um, and all the big payers, you know, all the state-run programs within all the like United Healthcare's and the Humana's and that are running Medicare Advantage programs uh, that are being pushed and prodded by CMS via the regulation uh, to just do better and you know across these uh, a variety of metrics. Uh, Oak Street uh, played to those, uh, but then also the patients like is undeniable the level of care and the increased outcomes, the, the better outcomes that, that came to the patient um, from a patient that was seeing an Oak Street doctor and, and was in Medicare Advantage plan or Medicare shared savings or ACO reach, which is the new one. 
uh, direct contracting, all those programs Oak Street was in and proved that their model generates savings and way better outcomes relative to their local benchmarks. Um, and then the, the final thing that Oak Street solved was um, they, uh, and it, it, you know, Oak Street was founded by a couple of guys who uh, were consultants uh, that worked at, at, at BCG uh, and, and, and their healthcare practice. And um, they really, really took seriously building a really, really quality culture. Mm. And it was undeniably better than everything else. Like it, it was like obvious and, and like through my due diligence, like I, I actually, before all these uh, provider groups are actually public, there's a handful of them public now, uh, before they were all public, I was studying this because I was like, I was learning about the, this transition into more, you know, risk-based provider groups and all this. And, um, and Oak Street had bubbled up as the premier asset. And then when they filed their S1, it was a no brainer for me to like really do the work. Uh, and um, it, it just, did not have not even in the same ballpark against any like any competitor and and that and that proved over time too as they as they went um they had general atlantic as a private equity firm as a big sponsor uh, which i've uh uh have done a lot of studying into their past companies uh, they are like on the ball with, with this whole thing and and a uh, great sponsor uh and so they had a lot of capital, but when they went public, they raised a lot of capital and it was, and, you know, in hindsight, it absolute market mania peak, right? Uh, it like a good valuation and low uh, dilution. Um, and they raised a boatload of capital. And part of that actually too, was a, a, a convertible bond at a 0% coupon, hmm. you know? Uh, and so like they had capital, uh, and they they went and started blitz scaling across the country, and, you know, and and so one one concern would be how in the world can you blitz scale? And, and and should one distinction with Oak Street is they early on chose to really emphasize and actually well not it's not just really emphasize only emphasize uh, organic growth. They like they don't acquire practices like they they make acuhires sometimes, but they don't go buy provider groups to scale into a new market. They build it from scratch. And that was a, a complaint from Wall Street because it took longer than anyone wanted on Wall Street. But it was true organic growth. And they had built the engine that was required to sustain that organic growth. And, and I think everybody was missing that. Uh, and they were just seeing enormous losses. Uh, and and part, of, part of flipping patients to risk in Medicare Advantage uh, is there's a J-curve per patient. Like it's like the unit economic of the patient first couple of three years, uh, you don't make money on that patient. And then, and then as you like literally address the sicknesses of this patient, which Oak street focused on like the multi-chronic generally poor and like the social determinants of health, which is a phrase, they were very good at managing those patients and they would see massive inflections of, of the, you know, for the same revenue, but, uh, the, the health spend that they were taking on as risk would go way down because they would pretty much keep that patient healthy, you know, uh, for their age and for their, uh, longstanding problems. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, so that would accrue as in a margin to them. And so, uh, I think the street and other investors that, especially investors that aren't healthcare investors, but like, they just, they just missed that, uh, that, you know, as, and they were getting operating leverage. So like, as they were growing, they were getting operating leverage where it mattered, which was in GNA 
and contracting rates on certain health spend. Uh, and, um, uh, but they were still showing greater and greater losses because they were growing so fast. Uh, my big concern at that time was you're growing super fast. Surely your outcomes are going to slip. Right. Uh, and, and then like this, like the unity, the unit economics start to break at that point. Uh, they never slipped. Uh, it's pretty amazing. It was actually, I mean, it was fantastic the performance that they were able to do at that growth rate in new markets and uh, completely different universe than all their competitors. Uh, and, and you can go and look at data on CMS, all this stuff's public. Like if you know where to look, you can go and look and see their outcome data on the different programs, the various programs that they're involved in. And, and they were in a different, they were going in a completely different ball field than everyone else. And um, uh, so like that was really important, right? <laughs> uh, I think the street was missing that. Um, I, you know, my mistake was I sized the position up too soon and overpaid, uh, in hindsight. And I would say if we never had, if we never did a big lift off on ZERP, you know, uh, uh, from ZERP, uh, and interest rates didn't swing as much as they did in 22, I'm not sure that it would have caused me as much pain as it did, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and, and you say, well, you know, you should have always known it, but well, I mean, we don't know what interest rates are going to do. Right. It's like, uh, uh, but still, uh, I, I think I managed the position well, like it, 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 at one point, I think it was, and this is going to be eye popping and and might push some prospective investors away, but like it, it went down 80% peak to trough and I never sold any of it. I didn't buy any of it. I like, I, I you know, it came pretty quickly. Uh, like it was, I got on board pretty quickly with the, re the rise in interest rates. And this is kind of kind of like going to change some things. And, and, and uh, in hindsight, yeah, I sure sold it all and then bought it back. But like uh, you know, the way I handled that was just not buy any until uh, until the 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 storm passed, and um, and then there was some you know, this is getting into the details of portfolio management and blocking and tackling. But 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 basically, I uh, there were some signals that were pretty blatantly obvious that I used to like size up the position at different times and 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 uh, and gave me confidence to do so. But you know, it, it, there was multiple ways to analyze that company. It was. Uh, the big things that I just mentioned there that you had to get right, which is that that culture showed up in better outcomes. It showed up in maintaining the growth rate, just, you know, or, or maintaining those, those attributes despite the growth rate. Um, they also were very savvy capital allocators. I thought, you know, they used the markets to their advantage. Um, but you could have also, and actually I, uh, I, I got to know this group through this name, but there's a, there's a, there's a group called route one investment company. Uh, they were big shareholders in it. Uh, you know, I got to know their senior analyst there that that covered that company. And he he really, he crossed over into retail. And, he, and the way he viewed that uh, analysis was per box, right? Mm -hmm. So you 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 build a facility uh, and it takes so amount of time, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to like staff it. Uh, and and then that's, that's all incorporated in some kind of IRR that the facility generates, you know, or a net present value rather. Uh, um, and, and he like calculated it that way. And there was, and, you know, I, I like tried to get on to his perspective and like turn it around and like, and evaluate it that way. And, and, um, cause I was evaluating it through like a per patient basis and just kind of trying to project out that J curve and like where that, where that flows. And then the assumptions of like GNA leverage and things like that. But like, uh, um, he was doing it on a per box and then calculating a net present value. And then was using that as like a, is this undervalued or not? And uh, and it traded multiple times at a discount to the 
net present value of the of these of the like stores that were in the ground already, not the ones that are going to build next year and the year after that, and the year after that. Uh, and you, you, you know, it just uh, was one more kind of like perspective to like add to the view that this thing is like not being valued appropriately. Uh, you know, I think they ultimately got taken out by CVS because uh, CVS a wanted a primary care platform that their competitors were all getting. Uh, but B also saw the uh, uh, significant synergies uh, that are out there when you have more control of the health spend across the entire value chain uh, from, because they, they own Aetna, the big, you know, in a big Medicare Advantage plan that is, has been struggling. They're getting better at it. Um, and all the way down to the delivery of care. Um, and uh, actually they just had an investor day uh, here a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe longer than, I can't remember, uh, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, something like that. Uh, and um, they had a slide in there and their CFO was talking about it. And it was followed by Mike Picos, who's the former CEO of Oak Street. It's now kind of running their whole uh, delivery segment. Uh, but um, uh, that for like every 1% penetration of a patient, or a customer that interacts at all with the CVS asset, whether that's walking into a CVS store and buying paint, you know, like a Advil or something or uh, using CVS uh, minute clinics or CVS Caremark as the, you know, their PBM through some other thing, uh, you know, uh, some other a relationship with a payer or something and uh, um, uh, or part of Aetna, you know, like in their MA plans or something. Uh, or a patient of Oak Street, uh, if you know someone that uses one of those that that engages with one of those assets, if they can get that patient to engage with all of those assets, they see like if, if they can just increase that engagement and, and they and they measure it across like all the potentials, like as a one percent engagement across the whole enterprise, that's a five hundred million dollar operating margin enhancement, and that's pretty significant. Right, just a one percent move, and right now they're like a half a percent of, of what they measure. If they can even measure that to that degree, I guess so there's some margin of error there. But uh, 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 but like that is huge, right? And, and like Oak Street is 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 a is like a very key asset for that on a very large item of spend in their Medicare Advantage plans. So like, I actually I, I know several. Uh, uh, healthcare focused investors that are bearish on Oak Street and think it's a money, it's just incinerating money. And also it's like, man, you're not doing the work. Like, like, I mean, seriously, like understand what's happening here, you know, and I don't care. Interest rates went to 5%. I mean, it's like, like, you know, it, this is not a ZERP phenomenon thing. This thing was incubated out of government regulation to fix a system that has a multi-decade transition and they are solving problems for everyone in it. And, and it has a massive financial impact. Like that is enormously valuable. <laughs> and uh, like, I, I kind of needed that stock to get sold like that, to kind of have some proof points in my strategy. But man, they took that away from me. I wanted to own that stock for a long time because that was going to be a hundred dollar stock. I mean, I got taken out at like 39 or 38 or something. And and we had we had averaged our cost basis down uh, down to like the like high teens, low 20s, depending on the account. Uh, and um, like, I mean, that's a great cost basis. You know, and uh, and that was my largest position going into this the start of this year, which feels like forever ago. But but uh, uh, it it uh, like 
that was gonna be a hundred stock, you know, a $100 stock one day. And, and like it, it, that, <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I think that's such a good example because, uh, because it really highlights so many different things you, you focus on unit economics, um, culture, right? So I think that's, that was a perfect way of, of, um, encapsulating the nom- nomadic value partner strategy. This season of compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. Uh, we can't ever leave a, a podcast without talking about the business of investment management and, and, and the client aspect. So one of the topics that shows up a lot in your presentation is the idea of limiting growth of assets and the number of clients. What is the philosophical underpinning there? Um, so when I started nomadic, uh, I had this like, kind of like, uh, it was a, it was a phrase, but it was, it was in like a joking manner, but also real, uh, was like, I don't want any client that I can't have a beer with, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, a, and I think what, uh, over time I've, I've been able to like put more nuance behind that of just generally like be on a, like have a personal connection with a client in some sh- shape or form, but then also open lines of communication. You know, uh, and over time that's evolved. Uh, and there's been a couple things that have uh, really helped me understand where I want to take a stand on that and actually say that I want to limit growth. <laughs> uh, and and um, if you don't mind, I don't, we could be running low on time, but like uh, uh, I've got a story that helps with that. Uh, it's actually about through hiking, but it was a really like... Uh, cohesive thought I had, which I don't have very many cohesive thoughts that just hit, you know, like, a, uh, you know, it's like, it's usually very slow burns that, 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 but like, uh, this was actually a, a thought that like popped into my head when I was on a through hike once. And, and, um, I was in the, uh, Uinta range, uh, in, in Utah and it's like exactly a hundred miles, like East to West. Uh, and it's actually the longest, uh, East West, uh mountain range in the in in north america um it's it's uh it's like the only east west mountain range in, in north america so like i guess i can't you know but like uh you know only being 100 miles but anyways it was a uh, it i like those distances because i can knock them out in four or five days uh and and uh and and that was a trip that i wanted to do in 2021 so i, I went on it and um that my evolution of through hiking has been one where it's uh, it starts off with just like learning how to walk of like, you know, ow, my ankles hurt or wow, I get shin splints. You know, how can I maintain 20 miles a day? You know, it's like, how do I like keep the fitness of that? And then like learn my body. But then also um, over time, it's gotten into like, how do I uh, maintain 20 plus miles a day over terrain that may be 3000 to 5000 feet of elevation change every day? you know, or, or like, and, and, or like, how do I cut across like an open range of desert, right? Where there's like very little water, you know, or like, how do I actually navigate where there's zero trail at all? Right. And, and like, I want to get better at like moving faster over different terrains like that. Right. And, and uh, so like when I do these walks, they're like a little bit of like a, like almost a spiritual because like, it like breaks me down physically it's some kind of new skill that has some risk attached to it. Should I not be able to do it? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I'm alone, 
And uh, so there's a lot of, naturally, there's a lot of thought about investing. And and as I've started Nomadic, uh, lots of thoughts about Nomadic. Uh, and so I was on this walk and uh, I uh, was actually, this is an aside, but a quick one and a fun one and a lesson. But like I usually use uh, a GPS on my phone uh, to tell me where to go when I go off trail. So this this particular walk was 100 miles in total length. Half of it was on like actual trails. Quarter of it was on what you call a use trail, which is where a lot of people go on a peak or, or a pass, but there's no actual marked trail. So there's generally some markings, but it's it's sparse and few in between sometimes. And then the other quarter was completely off trail, just bushwhacking through, like like cutting across something. And uh, and so I was about halfway through, and I had a creek crossing, which is actually a raging river. <laughs> uh, uh, I just I messed that one up. Thought it was a creek. It was actually a raging river. Uh, and I get across it safely, and I look down, and my phone's gone. And, uh, and I was like, oh shit. I don't know where I'm going. And luckily, and this was, this was the mistake was I was actually packing really fast. It was, it was after a business trip and I wanted to get this, I wanted to jump on this trip, get it done, get back. And I packed the paper map, did not pack a compass. Uh, And so I had a paper map that, that I, and I'd studied the trail enough luckily before that I, uh, or the path that I knew the mix of trails and path that I needed and the, the names of the passes more importantly. Um, and uh, so I ended up walking the rest of that walk with just a paper map and looking up and, and using geography as a handrail, you, you call it, where like you need to walk down the stream. And then after so long, you cut and there's this peak there and then like this lake here and like that kind of thing that kind of navigate through. But anyways, uh, I was uh, one day past that, uh, two days past that. I was in the second day past that. And uh, um, there was this pass called Dead Horse Pass. And uh, and the passes in the Uinta range, well, there's two things unique about the Uinta range is one, the passes don't really require any scrambling where you're on your like hands and knees over like big talus boulders and things like that. But they are steep as shit and like loose gravel and they can be kind of treacherous uh, and they're like really narrow. And uh, so like that's that's kind of fun. And then the the second unique thing to the Uinta range is they are super wet. Like it rains and storms all summer long, uh, like thunderstorms, like just rolling thunderstorms all day, all summer. And that's kind of dangerous when you're going over a pass. Right. And uh, uh, so I was this particular day. It was like uh, I can't remember the exact time of day, but it was like somewhere around midday. And I was I needed to go up over like up and over uh, Dead Horse Pass. And I was kind of tired. And, you know, if, if anyone does any kind of endurance, anything, it's like the body can go and go and go for a long time, but you got to keep it fueled uh, and in like very certain bits of rest. And I wasn't kind of at the end of like I needed to eat something. But <laughs> but, uh, but anyways, um, there was a storm that was pounding up against this mountainside that was right beside Dead Horse Pass, uh, a Dead Horse Pass. And uh, which was kind of protecting the pass, but also at any point in time that storm would have come over. And um, uh, and uh, so anyways, I, I, I got over the pass. I, I, I took a risk and went over the pass. And sure enough, I turn around and look and it's storming right on top of the pass. And I had this like really coherent thought at the time. I was like, if I was guiding five people, would I have done that? Right. 
And uh, and that I spent like the rest of the day that day just like thinking about that. And then I've spent lots of time since thinking about that. Um, and uh, and then uh, there's I recently read this book called The Model uh, by Richard Lawrence. Uh, and, you know, he actually writes uh, that they limit growth uh, to like X percent per year or something, uh, 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 which I've since learned is something he uses to like uh, uh like uh, evaluate banks. Like if they're growing faster than, than this X percent, then they're not going to like, but, uh, but anyways, he has, it's written in his LPA and his limited partnership agreement that they're only going to grow so much per year. Uh, and he actually challenges other investors. He said publicly write in your LPA to do that. And if you do that, I'll, uh, and you come to me and want me to help you raise money, I'll help you like kind of thing. And it's like, that's kind of like a really aggressive like foot forward. It's like do it, you know, and no one does that, right? So, uh, so I don't have an LPA. I don't have a limited partnership, right? I do, I do separately manage accounts, but like I take that in combination with like that, that thought of like would I guide people over this? And and like you know, there's that saying: um, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go with others. And I, I, I've just determined that I want to go fast and I want to go far. <laughs> and uh, so like. Uh, yeah, I would guide five people over a pass like that, but they got to be people that know what they're doing with the pack they're carrying and the distance they're walking and all that. So when it, to wrap it back into investing, it's it's, and I had this on a slide uh, uh, in my presentation, and it is like limit growth to investors that understand and and like want the uh, returns profile of concentrated value investing, and that you know basically what that means is volatility, right? Like you understand what I'm doing, and you will actually embrace the volatility because that's when our, our our behavior can get aligned correctly uh to generate outperformance on a money weighted basis uh and uh so um that that's really what I mean by that and I'm I'm gonna stick to it and you know like it if if a client if a potential client comes to me and they're like part of a fund to fund that's hot money chasing a track record and we're not gonna do business you know uh and and like that's my dedication to to that is like and that benefits my clients right like it, there's uh, like if you're managing money for other people it is a it can be a head spin when you think you're going to lose a client right and it can get you out of your game when you need to be focused on portfolio management or research or something better serving current clients that aren't acting like that or giving you pressures like that uh so like it's uh um i'm dedicated to to limiting growth not necessarily to a number uh, although that it, it incorporates, but like, uh, uh, but limiting growth to clients that really, really embrace the process. Sorry for that really long story, but <laughs> it was actually really important to me coming up with that. Yeah, no, what an interesting way to come up with a, a business philosophy. Uh, so I have a million more questions for you, but I think we're going to have to close with our favorite question. And the one we asked all our managers, which is, what do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity set that's in front of Nomadic Value Partners? The investment opportunity set. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm really trying to build the foundations of a business that's going to be here for decades. Uh, and it starts with the research process. It, you know, it's been highly engineered into the operational uh, procedures and choice of structure of how I like the actual vehicle at which I manage others money in it's it's in the fee rate 
It's in all, you know, it's in these things. It's absolutely in the client side select. Um, so what that means uh, in terms of the investment opportunity set is that uh, I rarely seek to build that. Like I've already built some, but I like I'm only 33 years old, right? Like I've got decades in front of me to build an institutional knowledge set about industries. Uh, um, and um, I, that's that's valuable. You know, and that's going to show up in returns. It, it has shown up in returns, and I strongly believe that it will show up in returns. Great. Well, Josh, uh, you are one of the more unique thinkers of anyone I know in this space. Um, and you have such an interesting background from farming to solar to allocators, you know, to actually putting money to work on behalf of clients uh, in, in stock portfolio. So, uh, we appreciate you sharing all of those uh, wonderful anecdotes and stories. And thanks for being on Compounders. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm super grateful that, A, you think I'm worthy enough of being on this podcast or, or interesting enough. But, uh, 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 Ben, you, you've, you know, we've known each other now for, I guess, a year uh, ish, something like that. But, like, uh, uh, definitely have become a friend. And I really appreciate the, the, choice times that we spent together and and talked and and i'm looking forward to that in the future too so likewise thanks josh yeah thanks ben josh mentioned a number of securities on his podcast i do not own any of them